I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Rod Arnold, better known as the Bourbon Whisperer. Rod is a graduate of Texas A&M University with a degree in marketing and communications. He is also a member of the famous Corps of Cadets. Rod had a long career in marketing and also the healthcare industry before he decided to make the leap and do something drastically different to become the Bourbon Whisperer. I can't wait to hear his story and what he has learned along the way, so let's jump right in. Well, Rod Arnold, thank you for taking the time to be a part of the podcast. I, you and I had an opportunity to meet in Atlanta, Georgia for a Christmas party, or I guess a birthday party around Christmas time that one of our mutual friends were having, and uh, you had a, an incredible setup there. And one of my buddies uh, kind of whispered in my ear and said, man, you got to hear Rod's story. It's awesome. This guy spent like his entire career in the professional sector and then all of a sudden decided to just like make this huge leap, this big pivot and become the bourbon whisperer. And I was like, hold on, stop. What? Are you serious? And what a fascinating career move. And you're obviously having so much success, award-winning bourbons, uh, doing things all over the country. And I, and I had an opportunity to chat with you a little bit about it. It just struck me. I'm a, I'm a movie fanatic. And it struck me that you're actually living one of the very common Hollywood uh, movie themes. Like the, these, these great famous movies that motivate and inspire people. And three of them that are at the top of my list. I mean, Diane Lane in her epic Under a Tuscan Sun. She's this go-getter professional in New York, and she's just tired of the hustle and bustle. And she just says, I'm done. And she goes and she buys this you know, uh, little home in, uh, in Italy and has this re- renaissance, this, this new uh, kind of beginning for uh, her career and her life. And, of course, uh, uh, the story of one of my all-time favorite movies, the story of Goodwill Hunting. You know, he has this moment where he's kind of in the self-discovery, and he pivots and makes a pretty big leap and changes his life. And one of my other all-time favorites was uh, the movie of Jerry Maguire. Right, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's got this. He's wrestling with his conscience, and he he writes this you know memo and and hits send and like it launches him in a, in a completely different career trajectory. Did you have one of those types of moments? Is this something that you that happened to you? You're like, hey, I'm I'm leaving communications and marketing and I'm going to go do something completely different. What's your origin story? So um, it's funny you mentioned Jerry Maguire because uh, I referenced that that story uh, in other settings <clears throat> pretty often. If, if you remember, he writes that brief about basically how his business is uh, and how it should be. Uh, he launches it and it ends up everyone applauds and then he gets fired, right? So sometimes it takes that type of event. I did not have that type of event, but ironically, um, uh, that was a moment earlier uh, in my career that helped me launch off on my own from you know years of working for other people. So I, I had started my own firm. I'm, I'm a recovering um, healthcare executive uh, of 30 years, uh, jokingly, uh, and I'd started my own company. Um, we had, we had invested uh, an inordinate amount of corporate training. Um, everyone that came onto my firm, we, we, I, I figured out later the average was around $82,000 per head that we'd invested in the first two or three years. I, I'm a huge believer in ongoing learning and education. No matter what your field of endeavor is uh, or your walk of life, you should always be learning. Uh, and I think a lot of the stories that you referenced uh, are for people 
uh, or about people uh, that continue to find new things, you know, to to intrigue them and make their life worthwhile. So we had started uh, the company, and uh, and it was doing well. And in retrospect, uh, the success or the growing success of it was actually uh, the detriment. So I looked up one day, uh, and I had built a metaphorical, uh, uh, amazing Ferris wheel, lights, you know, camera, action. Everyone was there. The crowds were there. And you realize when you're building a company at some point that uh, you know the the uh, you know the cheese can move, right? The goals can move, and you look up and realize one day um, that the harder you work, um, you're just spinning your wheels. So revenues were getting larger, the staff was getting larger, the scope of work was getting larger, um, the trickle down through to the bottom to bring home uh, was not. Everything was being plowed back into the company to scale it. And you realize that you're just running yourself into the ground. So, so coincidentally, I had, um, I've always been involved in the not-for-profit uh, sector, um, just philanthropic, charitable work. And uh, one of the boards that I served on had a, uh, uh, a fundraising event. We were coming up with some fundraising ideas. And this was some years ago, but, but the, the conference was going to happen in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'd been in Louisville. I traveled through Kentucky quite a bit uh, for my healthcare work. Um, just driving down the, the roads, I went from uh, hospital to hospital. Big blue eight sign, a big blue eight sign. Never looked. I mean, I knew there were industries there. I knew there's, there were distilleries there. I never gave it a second glance all through the 90s. And um, so it was going to be in Louisville. And I said, look, there's only two things to do uh, that are big in Louisville, horses and bourbon. And the, the, you know, the horse uh, business is over by that time of year. Um, and I said, maybe we should try to do some sort of a, of a bourbon tasting. Bourbon was starting to get... Uh, you know, um, popular. Um, and I knew a little bit about it, not very much, honestly. Um, and we, we uh, said, well, let's go ahead and do this event and try it. Um, it was, it was uh, a modest event for around 70 people. Um, it was successful. It raised some good, some good money for, for educational purposes, for scholarships. But more importantly, everybody had fun. And uh, in preparing for that event, you know, you have to read up on it. Mm -hmm. if, if you're going to, I was hosting it. So, you know, uh, I was reading up on books and learning about it. And the more I learned about it, it was really uh, the history of the industry, uh, the people that are involved in the industry, and so many stories uh, that have occurred. Um, uh, it's it's a very unique industry outside of what, you know, what they're producing, um, just in regards to the historic ups and downs. They've had a couple of very specific periods, you know, one uh, everyone thinks of as, you know, prohibition uh, that just, you know, about ran everything out of business and and, uh, and ended it. And there was another phase that they went through in more recent times um, where the, the industry really pulls together in some very, very unique ways. So um, out of that event, it was very successful. People were coming up saying, I've been coming to these, you know, silly conferences for years and years, and this is the most fun I've ever had. And then people come up and say, can you do this again? And I just said, sure, not a problem. So I started doing some other corporate events and spinoff private events. And again, learning along the way. And the more I got into it, uh, the more I found myself spending time doing that because heaven forbid, uh, and everyone's heard this, you know, you have to have fun at what you do. You have to enjoy what you do. And uh, so it was fun. And um, uh, after years of, of being involved in a desk job or in, in very specific types of work, you sometimes can uh, lose sight of what fun is, and everyone wanted to talk about it. I think the crescendo moment came up. I was doing a large corporate event out in California and um, uh, was walking around in a very large crowd telling stories and, and you know, sharing 
and doing little pours of bourbon. And someone said, Hey, we've got this guy that you, you know, we, we need you to meet, you know, he, he needs to talk to you. And I walked him and, and he introduces himself. He is the brand new CEO of a, an extremely large health system in Kentucky. And he had just moved to Louisville and, uh, and we talked for a little bit and he said, why did you get out of healthcare? And I said, well, uh, I'll leave his name out here for some privacy yeah, yeah, sake, but yeah. I said, well, we've been sitting here talking about bourbon for almost an hour. I said, if I call you on Monday and want to talk about my specific line of work in your in your uh, industry, would you take the meeting? And he laughed and said, no, of course not. <laughs> and I said, there you go. He said, that's excellent. He gave me his card. He said, call me. I don't know anyone in town uh, in Louisville. I need to start meeting people, and you know everybody there. Wow. So it, it's just odd. You know, again, you you uh, uh, in whatever your line of work is, sometimes you find yourself really pushing against a wall and trying to overcome obstacles uh, to hit goals. And, you know, any type of the good training will say, well, maybe you need to be like water and just flow around the obstacle or maybe you're just going in the wrong direction uh, entirely. So it went from uh, hobby to uh, uh, side endeavor uh, for charitable purposes. Uh, and then it, and then it turned professional. Uh, and so now it's much more about education. I do, I do, uh, bourbon certification classes. If you want to be the equivalent of a wine sommelier for bourbon, I teach those classes, uh, here in Atlanta, uh, for the state of Georgia, uh, do, do private parties and I do large philanthropic, uh, you know, charitable events as well. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. That's awesome. I've got so many questions for you. And I know we're going to put all this in the show notes, but for those people who are listening right now and want to go out immediately and follow you, uh, you have a website, the bourbonwhisper.com, correct? And then we're on socials. Where are the places where people can uh, be connecting with you and learn more about this? Mm -hmm. uh, the easiest one is Instagram for whatever reason. I think it's just the, uh, uh, the, the age brackets, but there are, uh, most of the bourbon community is on Instagram. So, uh, it's, uh, on Instagram, bourbon whisperer, all one word. And then, uh, and then the website, of course, uh, lots of information on there, all different types of things, uh, you know, services that I do, but basically anything bourbon related, I write articles for local, uh, you know, local and regional, uh, uh magazines, publications as well. So there's a lot of things going on. So here you are as this uh, healthcare executive, um, and you're you're doing this as a just a little bit. You, know, you you see a need, and you're going to meet the need, and you you're having some fun with it. People start asking you to do some more and more of it. At some point, you're having to make this decision of okay, am I going to quit my full time job and do this full time? Am I going to, now I'm going to make a pivot. It's no longer just going to be a hobby, but I'm going to make a life out of this. I'm going to make a business out of it. Walk me through some of the things that you're, that are going through your mind. Uh, were you filled with any type of maybe apprehension or fear, maybe doubt? I mean, are you running spreadsheets and saying, well, man, I'm, I'm making X at my normal job. And, you know, how am I going to make a business out of this? What were some of the things that were, you were struggling with or wrestling with as you're making that decision? I, I think from, again, it all started from a giving perspective. The, the, the majority of the early uh, assignments or work or events that I was doing were focused on charity work. And there was a specific point that I remember where my uh, assistant at the time, uh, my executive assistant walked in and she made a comment. She said, you know, um, today you seem to, you were spending more time on the, on these event plans than you were on the client projects. And she wasn't saying it in, in any type of a, a critical way at all. It was more of a strict observation. And she said, you know, when you're working on this stuff, you're smiling a lot. Mm -hmm. 
I was like, huh. And, and she said, you know, just a thought. And, and I, we had just completed what to date has still been my largest uh, charitable event. And it was a formal sit down bourbon tasting in Denver, Colorado, 460 people. Uh, and that was a, that takes a lot of planning. If you can imagine again, if it were a, you know, wine tasting um, and everyone sits down, there's a place setting, you've got, you know, six or seven wine glasses for every place setting there times 160. I mean, you start, you know, you have uh, just the planning for that event was just monstrous. It raised a lot of money um, in a very short period of time, but the logistics of it planning for it uh, were a lot, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, so there, there was that moment. And then when you realize that, um, and again, I think anybody who's been doing a line of work for a long period of time where they have, you know, they may have some lingering questions. There's people that have been in a vocation for years that enjoy what they do. And that's fantastic. Um, but if you're in a situation where you realize I've been doing this for 30 years, um, part of it completely makes sense. The development of it has made sense uh, because that's just who I've been professionally for a long time. But you look at it and realize that, uh, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel um, uh, is 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 not getting any bigger quicker. Mm. And while you're running, uh, you're also spending a lot of time. And I think, you know, I think we all reach that point where we realize our most valuable asset uh, is is time uh, and our health. Mm -hmm. uh, and so time figures into that very well. Uh, when you start thinking about what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to spend your days? And is it going to be fruitful? It's interesting that you highlight that your executive assistant noticed how much fun you were having. She saw it on your face. And maybe it goes back to that the earlier comment where you're sitting down with that healthcare CEO and you asked him a pointed question, which was if I try if I was trying to get a hold of you and wanted to have a conversation with you, would you take my phone call? And he's like, no. And that was your job. You're, you're, you were, you, part of your work was, I need to be making these phone calls. I need to be connecting with people. And maybe it was a little bit of this, like pushing a rock up a hill. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in an environment where you're not pushing rocks up a hill, but it's people want to have a conversation with you. They can't wait to have a conversation with you. It's fun. It's like all of a sudden you're in this, I think Warren Buffett refers to this as those uh, swift moving currents in the economy. It's like you can be an average player and find those swift moving currents. That's where you want to be. And so you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in this spot where uh, the, the friction's removed. Uh, walk me through some of the, the insights that you had when you're kind of connecting those dots. And be like, you know what? I'm enjoying this so much, and I'm just I'm gonna go with the flow. And this this is fun, and I'm I'm good at it. And people are and inviting me back and wanting me to have more and more of these. Um, what, what's going through your mind when you're kind of connecting those dots? Well, you you have to have you have to have a great uh, team around you, and I don't just mean that professionally. I, I have a, a an extremely smart, understanding uh, wife that she actually helped. Um, uh, she didn't help. She she drew up the business plan. She dealt. She she put up with me when we were putting together a business plan for my own healthcare company years mm -hmm. ago. So you know she's looking at the formula, and um, uh, uh, complete credit to her that when we went to go get financing at the beginning to launch that business, you know the the, the banks were extremely enthusiastic because they just don't get really good business plans a lot. So you're looking at this and you're following the data for a number of years. And how it should play out and again the numbers were working uh, but that became ironically the problem we all get really good you mentioned pushing you know boulders up the hill i think most people um 
if they either enjoy what they do or they're just very good, determined, uh, success-driven people, you get really good at pushing those boulders up the hill. And it sometimes takes outside forces to tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, maybe you shouldn't be, maybe you don't have to push that boulder up the hill. Maybe there's a way down the hill that you could let it roll and walk behind it um, and and have a lot more fun, be more enjoyable and be more successful in in what you're doing. And I think there were moments like that. A lot of it, I I do credit to a lot of the training uh, that we were doing and just planning uh, and goal setting that you could really mark the time of are things happening in the direction you want them to happen? And the answer was yes, but are they happening in the time frame that you're expecting to happen? And that's where some of the question marks would come up. And then when you started forecasting, uh, and there were some other, uh, not to jump off in other directions, but you know, in healthcare at the time, there were some new forces coming into play that were dramatically altering the landscape. And I can't say that they were all for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some very good messaging going on saying this is going to be great for everybody. It just wasn't the case. And I think anybody attached to that industry, uh, I, I have not found many people that would disagree with me in regards to the changes that were going on. So you realize, well, we're just going to have to, you know, buckle down and work harder. This, the services we were providing were, were actually more needed than ever. Uh, but it also affected the type of projects, uh, the, the forecasting, and the fun stuff, the future planning was gone. It was all very urgent, immediate. Hey, we have a problem, an immediate problem we need to fix now. So the urgency would go up. The decision making on the client side would change. Uh, it just, it was just, uh, it was just getting to be a mess. And then you're again, you're looking over here uh, on the side. Uh, again, everyone check your, you know, check your mirrors. Sometimes just, just out your side window, there's something going on running alongside of you uh, that continues to get your attention. And uh, you're drawn toward it, uh, and sometimes you just have to investigate that further. And I think that's what I think that's what ultimately led to it here. But again, a very patient spouse, uh, <laughs> as you can imagine. If you're talking about, in in my case, if you're talking about bourbon, it goes from a neat hobby, and uh, uh, you know anyone who was uh, you know out and about in the '90s, you know, cigars had a massive, massive renaissance in the '90s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, here in Atlanta, I mean, there was a there was a cigar lounge. Uh, on every suburban strip shopping center for a period of time. I mean, everybody, people who had never smoked cigars were purchasing cigars and getting into that culture a little bit. It's backed off a bit. It's still there. Uh, but at the time, everybody was doing it. So so bourbon starts to take off. So it's, uh, you know, everyone started collecting a few bottles and talking about it. But it goes from a hobby uh, where it's a scale of one to three, just learning about it. And then one day your wife looks in and there are quite a number of bottles everywhere. And you're talking about, you know, looking at your business and reevaluating things. And, I mean, any, any sane person would look at a scans at that and say, do we have a problem here? You're spending a lot of time around bourbon, you know, contemplating massive life changes. Uh, so it, it took a bit of a business plan to see, um, you know, where that was going to go. And, and, uh, I think that the watershed moment uh, for that uh, in, in getting getting the team behind me, at least, was she attended a couple of my events and she noticed one time that she's she's uh, uh, very observant uh, and very data driven and, and uh, the details uh, mean everything to her. And she walked up, she said, you didn't have a drink. I'm like, well, no, of course I did. She goes, but, but no, you didn't have anything. Like you're walking around. I mean, even during a wine tasting, the sommelier is, you know, walking you through it. And I said, sweetheart, I'm, I'm working. This is work. I'm, I'm teaching. I'm educating and telling stories. If I am 
fully engaging in the process, that could severely, uh, you know, inhibit my ability to do my job, uh, which is to educate and to entertain. And a light bulb went off where she said, okay, I get it. It's not a, you're, you're, you're not a bartender. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 a, you're a narrator, you're a historian uh, and a teacher. So uh, I think that helps quite a bit having people in your corner. Well, your wife is certainly a rock star. Uh, um, boy, how supportive and then insightful to be able to be a partner with you to help pull the business plan together and all that. That's what an incredible story. You know, I want to uh, also double click on the insight that you had uh, about the changing landscape of your industry. And I think that, I mean, because that led to you making a pretty big pivot when you started to see it's like, uh-oh, landscape's changing. World's, world's changing, things are going to get a little more difficult, but it, I, you referenced looking outside your, um, uh, the window or you're re looking into your rear view mirror and seeing other opportunities that might be around you. And it feels like that happens at a time like we are today, where uh, people kind of that have been doing the same old uh, routines and, and all of a sudden the world starts changing and people are, that are aware, you were self-aware, you were discerning, started to craft a different type of game plan for success. And there was probably a lot of people like you, similar position, same industry, maybe were feeling some of those headwinds or those going against the current that weren't either self-aware enough or didn't have the discipline or the drive to say, I'm going to make a pivot. And they stayed where they were at and probably were hurt because they were not willing to make that leap or to make that pivot. And I, I think we're experiencing that right now. I'm, I'm watching a lot of business leaders in a lot of different sectors and they're seeing kind of like um, the, the pressures that are building globally and domestically. And they're trying to figure out ways in which they can pivot their businesses or even themselves personally into a completely different line of work and be like, Oh, I, I've got to get there. What, what someone who is, maybe struggling with that decision. They, they know they need to make that leap, make that change, but are a little bit hesitant. Maybe they're fill, filled with a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of fear. Um, any words of advice or encouragement for them? Anything that you learned along that process? I know for me, it feels like when you have a plan and you start executing that plan, anxiety starts to dissipate things that, that the, the, the murkiness or the fog of war, we've you know, heard that in business at times, the fog of war, it starts to clear. It starts, you start having a more def, well-defined path. Oh, I know what that next step needs to be. What, what have you found in your journey? I have, I have found that uh, my mind is riddled with metaphor. So I'll, I'll uh, uh, apologize for that on the front end. I think it comes from all of the sales training classes and motivational and mindset and all that, you know, it, Clearly, 90% of what's going on in our life is happening between our ears. And I heard a, a very good saying the other day that I'm sure you've heard before, Bob, but, but it was referring to the fact that I've had many, many tragedies, travails, and stresses in my life. Um, uh, about 10% actually occurred, right? The other 90% we, we play through our head in worry and stress about what could happen. And then you realize uh, most of them are just complete. Um, they're made up in our head. Now, it, it's a great thing to go over, um, you know, with caution, um, you know, the possibilities in your head. So you don't make that we're, we're trained to do that should be in our human nature to make to keep us out of, you know, imminent danger every day. But it is extremely easy to get 
uh, stuck in our group. The the old terminology for it, uh, people refer to it as midlife crises, mm -hmm. because I think society was much more uh, not not maybe sedate, but you know if 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 you if you just look back at previous generations, I mean they they just matured a lot sooner. So there were a lot of adults walking around acting like adults. So what would happen is it'd be extremely difficult to just jump off in a different direction. People would think you were out of your mind. They and they refer to that as a midlife crisis. Now, back then, I'm sure it still happens, but you know it would be pent up to the point that when there was a professional change, there was a personal change, and everything else. So you would see people making not dramatic shifts, but drastic uh, shifts. And I think there there is a bit of a difference there where people just kind of mentally explode and say, "That's it. I've got to do something different," and they just leave everything behind and they put on a knapsack and you know, go hike, go hike the mountains in Switzerland, mm. uh, leaving everything behind because their brain finally says, I cannot live with this lie that you're living anymore. And your brain takes over and just says, you, you've got to, you've got to go in a different direction. We have a lot better, uh, help and, and a lot better information, uh, these days. So you can look at it, but I would say if you're, if you're, if you're sitting in any career that you've been in for a while, the longer you do it, it is more difficult to break out of the patterns that you set up for yourself. The, the barriers, you, you're putting up the safety barriers for yourself for the right reasons, but they become the bars on your prison cell if you're not careful. So you have to trust in your own abilities and believe in your own abilities and then step back and say, you know, take a couple of days, you know, with a pen and a pad of paper and think about what was it, you know, when I was seven, you know, what was it that I really wanted to be? Now, we'll say in my case, Batman was really not a realistic uh, expectation, but there was a number of things that people talk about. You know, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be this or I wanted to do this. It's not always the specific job, but it's the type of activity uh, that you wanted to do. You know, mm -hmm. what did you want? You, what did you want to do? And I can, you know, reinterpret that as, you know, I wanted to do good. I wanted to, 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 to do well for others and help them up and be some sort of a, a role model. So now I've got you know, three teenage sons, um, and they are a mirror and reflection of my wife and I. Uh, as with all of us, you know, that can be for better, for worse. The, the best of them, you can see, you know, how they're growing up. And the worst of them, you can say, maybe I need to tamp that down a little bit because they're not getting it from, from anywhere else than in the household. Um, so they become a reflection of what you're doing. Yeah, as you're sharing there, the, the quote that came to mind was, was one that we've probably uh, heard many times was just the, uh, the, the chains of our habits are unnoticeable until they are too strong to be broken. And yeah, yeah. yeah as, as we get older, you know, those, those habits get stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's, it's just very difficult to make, you know, that big leap like you just did, uh, which is one of the things that it's just exciting to be able to talk to somebody who's done that. They noticed it, you were discerning and they're like, all right, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. And there's, I think there's a lot of people who have insight, but they're afraid to make that move. Um, so it's, it's great to, you know, be able to learn from somebody who's done it. Let's, let's, let's pivot into, um, bourbon as a whole. I'm, I'm really interested to like, as you're learning this, um, you, first of all, I guess you, you noticed there, there was a, uh, a, a segment of this that you were, you were pivoting this business into, and it se seems like it was, uh, the not-for-profit space. And it was that your start? And I've been told many times that one of the 
uh, best ways to run a charity event, especially if you're going after a lot of donations. Make sure people are having fun. Make sure you've got some uh, good alcohol there. It's a social lubricant. People are excited. The checks are bigger. That was uh, some advice I got in a previous job. It's like, make sure you have a, gr a great event. And so you're pivoting into that not-for-profit kind of fundraiser space, but you're also now doing it for businesses and other things. What, what did you discover and it, it was that a kind of like your uh, your push, and the, did did you how did you build out into other sectors of the economy? So, so as we we're making this shift in the conversation, right from business to the fun part, which is which is great because I'm sure everyone wants to hear more about the fun part. Yeah, uh, that since they take a few lessons. So uh, the the one piece of advice that I would give in this you know in this branch from one of the other what it what it did for me was I'd always heard this um, my dad had, had taught me this but you know always find a place to serve and mm -hmm. it and it really doesn't matter where it helps you get out of your own head. Mm. In other words, focus on others. Stop. You know, you, you, you need to look in the mirror and be introspective. But at some point, it's like get over yourself. There's a whole world out there of people. Um, you know, the, the big word right now is appreciation. You know, appreciate what you have, mm. right? Because there are a lot of people that are that are really, really struggling on a lot of different levels. You know, don't bemoan what you don't have. Appreciate what you have. The easiest way to do that is some sort of service and it can be in it can be in your church it can be a you know a local charity uh, any number of ways but get out and and do things strictly for the sake of others it will completely change your mindset and also give you a third party point of view in regard to to what you're doing and and what really counts um, I'm really involved in, in ironically with the bourbon whisper, but really involved in scouting um, with with my three boys, uh, and that is all about giving. There, you're, you know, you're what you get is those moments uh, to see, you know, your kids performing and growing. Um, so it's like being a teacher. The bourbon stuff completely grew out of the service mm -hmm. of of you know doing charitable work and raising money uh, for some of these organizations. That is 100% where it came from. The intriguing part to me that I think drew me into it uh, on other levels. Um, I'm a big history buff and, you know, prohibition is, is, is well known to everybody, but the, the second downturn uh, in the industry, if you want to back up from a, from a American whiskey standpoint um, happened in the 1960s, I, I guess, like a lot of things happened and changed in the late 1960s, but there was a social shift of, of that generation, not wanting to be or do anything remotely close to what their parents or grandparents did. So the, in, in retrospect, the seminal uh, societal moment or pop culture moment that happened was as soon as Sean Connery starred in the first James Bond uh, movie, and he said, vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Mm. And at that, they, they point back to that pop culture moment. That wasn't what caused it, but that's kind of the point where they can say it was about that point in time moving forward. People moved away from the brown liquors um, all through the world wars. Obviously, um, you know, whiskeys were, were I'll just say popular uh, in, in, uh, in American culture and, and westward expansion. At that point, um, uh, there was a shift towards clear liquors, gins, vodkas, um, you know, wines uh, played a, a large part in that as well. Um, but the industry didn't realize the shift when you are, if you take away the, the romantic side of it and the fun and the distillery tours and all that, it's a manufacturing facility. So it's all about supply and demand. And they're, they're you know, some of the largest distilleries don't just make, you know, um, alcohol for whiskey for drinking. They make, you know, uh, uh, commercial alcohol. They make things that go towards, you know, uh, military munitions, jet fuel, all sorts of things. Um, so they're, they're just shifting 
or backing off on, you know, maybe they're not running, you know, running the stills uh, on third shift and weekends anymore, but people still show up to work and they mm -hmm. move barrels around and they're bottling and they're packaging and sending it out. It, some of those things don't change for quite a while until they realize the warehouses are full. We don't need to make any more because, you know, uh, demand has slacked off. So it was a very, very slow bleed process in the industry all through the 60s, 70s. And then in the 80s, by that point, um, uh, the demand was so low that a lot of the distilleries were closing. Um, some of the inventory was being used and shifted into other products. Um, and, and some of the distilleries, the plants were just left in ruins. Um, and I think that's where a lot of history kicked off. Some of the biggest brands uh, that are out there today that are extremely popular or cult, you know, have cult followings, um, were, were struggling, I mean, just hanging on by a thread. And, and the irony and, and the, the level of appreciation in the industry right now, they don't take any of the current popularity for granted at all. Um, they're, they're planning, they're, you know, they, they've, uh, you know, uh, obviously financially, uh, they've recouped quite a bit. And they're planning for the future, not just growth, but being very careful and strategic in what they do so that it doesn't happen to them again. But, but out of all those hard times, you're dealing with an industry that is very family-based. I mean, there are some you know, specific families that have been in it for generations and generations. Um, a lot of it is small town. So people really come together when, when times are tough. Um, I'll, I'll give my favorite example. Um, one of the largest distilleries in Kentucky. People know the brands. Sometimes they don't know the name of the distillery. The distillery I speak of is Heaven Hill Distillery. Um, the, the brands that they make that most people would know are Evan Williams, uh, Elijah Craig, um, Pikesville Rye, and a couple of others, but those are the big ones. And those are some really, really big high volume brands. Um, in the, in the mid nineties, the, the anniversary of the event just came up a couple of weeks ago and I, I did a short video uh, on it. I revisit it pretty often, but, uh, middle of the summer, they had a, uh, thunderstorm, uh, big storm system come through and there was a lightning strike that hit one of the rick houses, the barrel warehouses on the campus. Um, as you can imagine, um, in with barrel proof whiskey that has not had water added to proof it down, um, you know, sometimes the, the proof levels on those are such that they are flammable, combustible, and they look up and there is a, you know, a rick house completely, a, you know, ablaze. And there are thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of barrels in these barrel warehouses. Mm -hmm. um, Within 15 minutes, the high winds had blown the flames and two more rickhouses had caught fire. Now you have three, but you also have barrels that are rupturing. So now you have, you know, basically, you know, fire lava uh, whiskey rolling down the hill towards the other rickhouses. In the span of about an hour, this entire campus was, was ablaze. It rolled down the hill. It burned up the distillery, the actual production facility uh, at the bottom of the hill. There was nothing you could do to really put it out. You're just trying to contain it. Mm -hmm. um, the fire could be seen from space, uh, from the satellites. They had satellite images of it. In a lot of industries, if a major competitor um, has a catastrophic event like that, um, the competition is they, they're dancing on the desks the next, next morning, thinking about, wow, what an opportunity this is. The reality was it was more like um, the the uh, the recent you know State Farm or Allstate commercials you know where they show up in the RV and they've got the clipboard and they're handing out checks to local residents that you know help their clients you know immediately start rebuilding. The next morning, uh, there's a series of phone calls between the major distillers, um, and and it, the the the, uh, the conversation they didn't have Zoom at this point, but it was you know conference calls of like, look, 
I've got extra warehouse space. You know, we're not, we're certainly not, you know, loading everything up right now. We've got empty warehouses we can put barrels in. Someone else said, I've got, you know, barrel production that I can do. Someone else said, we have, you know, third, uh, you know, third shift capabilities of the stills. Give us, you know, give us your, your, uh, 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 recipes mm-hmm. and we'll start making them here. We'll barrel them here. We'll send them over to his place to store. So within 24 hours, all of these other competitors had come together and said, I can make it for you. I can store it for you. I can bottle it for you. What do we need to do to keep your brands out of the shelves? Because they understood if one of us goes down, we all go down. We lose, we lose worldwide market share if the product is not on the shelves. That story stuck with me from a business perspective. I don't know any other industry where that happens. Right. None. Uh, it's just astonishing. Now, some of it, obviously, you know, there's some personal relationships and people know each other. But, you know, there's, there's, there's boards of directors involved. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not something you do on a whim. Uh, and now some of the most collectible bottles out there for the cultists are these bottles of very famous bottlings where the flavor profile is, is similar um, but special. And they say, oh, that's the year that actually wasn't made there. It was made over at this other distillery uh, that's not listed on the label anywhere. And they, they propped up the distillery. In fact, one other company, Brown Foreman, said, hey, we've got a distillery um, that we can sell to you um, across the street that, that you know, um, it is underutilized right now. And it was the Bernheim Distillery, which is actually distilled spirits producer number one. It was, it was the number one registered distillery. Uh, first registered distillery uh, in the state of Kentucky, and they sold it to Heaven Hill. And Heaven Hill continues to make all of their whiskey in Louisville and then ship it all out to the Bardstown campus. Just uh, just amazing collaborations that were were going on at that time. What an incredible story. It it strikes me. I've heard uh, the only other thing that I've heard that's similar would be in like in the farming community, right? Like a spe- like Amish communities and various farming communities in the Midwest. So if somebody has a barn that burns down or there's something about, you know, uh, being a creator and working with the land and, and knowing how difficult it is to create this and, and being out there in this community. And when you see one of your brothers or your sisters and they have a cataclysmic event, the community rallies around, you know, it's heartwarming to see that uh, in this industry. And it, it strikes me as you were sharing a little bit ago, talking about, you know, finding joy in life and passion in life and, you know, in, in service of others, that, that, that this community, you know, exemplifies that. And uh, it, you just, it's heartwarming because you want to see more of that in our world today. It's like if we had more of that type of attitude, um, more of that type of community building, our, our, I think our world would be a different place. Yeah. It's, it's, and they're great people in the industry. I mean, you know, a lot of them have been in those positions for a long time. And all of a sudden, if you can imagine, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden the spotlight uh, is shining on people who never intended uh, to, to live in a spotlight at all. In mm-hmm. fact, some of them are jokingly, you know, uh, very uncomfortable with it. Uh, you know, they play the parts, but, um, you know, people ask me all the time, segueing into the fun stuff, you know, people say, you know, Rod, what's the right way to drink bourbon? And what I love about bourbon is it's extremely unpretentious. I've got buddies that are, you know, that are really into scotch and all that, and I, I certainly appreciate it as well. Uh, bourbon is unique in the fact that it is is much more um, – uh, it's it's not buttoned up. It's much more jeans and a casual jacket, you know, uh, and maybe a barn coat, uh, proverbially. Um, Jimmy Russell at Wild Turkey, you know, uh, who has been there forever, 
Um, and someone will ask him, you know, Mr. Russell, what's the right way to drink whiskey? And he'll say, and his, his answer is verbatim, quote, you know, any damn way you like. It is to your palate. You want it with Coke? I'll ask you, you want regular or diet? It does not matter. Don't worry about what anybody else says. You drink it the way that you like it. It's meant to be enjoyed. And I think that's a, that's what makes, that's what puts a smile on people's face as well as, uh, you know, just the, the, the culture, the attitude around it is, is much more relaxed. Well, you, you certainly were demonstrating that at the uh, birthday party we were at uh, in Atlanta, and it was so much fun. I was asking you lots of questions. And so one of the questions that I get asked uh, quite frequently uh, about a, drinking a bourbon or the best way to uh, drink a, a good whiskey, it, is there a, a difference between having it neat or on the rocks? I've always been one of the guys that's like, I, want, I was a purist. It's like, I want it neat. I want to be able to taste it. Um, with without any type of additives, and then I've had other friends be like, "Oh, Bob, you know, you've, it's like a wine. You've got to open it up. It's got to, you know, that a little drop of water or, or an, an ice cube. It, it gives it more flavor profile and it, uh, releases the aromas." So, educate me on this: neat or on the rocks? Is there as a preferred way, a better way? There are so many stories and uh, things that flood in my head. I know you're going to have to edit this down because I don't know how, how much people can listen to all of this. Um, no, hey, I've got episodes that are two uh, two plus hours long, so I'm, this, I'm fascinated by this. So we'll go. The 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 neat versus on the rocks. Here is here's the why behind that. I, okay. I like it neat. Okay. okay? Um, uh, but that is because of what I'm doing. I'm having to to sit down and and taste through it. And, and try to be like one of these really, really educated wine people and get all these tasting notes out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and in being up in Kentucky, number one, I'll say uh, for, the, for the ladies out there, women have three times, this is science, three times the olfactory senses that men do. So taste and smell, they're three times as good uh, at, at drawing out the notes. And if you've ever been to a, you know, a wine tasting, they're, they're, they're getting a lot more out of it. That's why they, I think they enjoy them so much because they really leave us in the dirt on that. The, 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 um, the tasters, uh, the people that are daily walking through the, the barrel warehouses and sampling the barrels to see how things are coming along by and large, they're most, mostly all women. Uh, they are, Proofing, as you can imagine, you know, everyone jokes and says, wow, I wish I had your job. Well, if you really had to do that job every single day out, you'd have to pace yourself. How do you even possibly do that? Number one, um, you know, they, they, they do not sip and, and swallow the product. They, they carry spittoons, you know, they, they have, they, they taste and then they have to spit it out. They cannot possibly ingest that much alcohol at any level. Mm -hmm. um, the second part is when they're doing their sampling, they are adding water to bring the proof point down to about 30 proof. Now the proof number, people ask what is what is proof? It used to be that you know uh, at a certain proof point, you know you can throw a match on it and it lights on fire, proof that it's actual whiskey and not something else uh, blended into it. So that that history of the, the word proof represents um, double, the um, alcohol content. So if something is 100 proof, it is, you're literally drinking 50% alcohol uh, and then uh, water or whatever else has been added to it. Bourbon is very specific in its definition. Only water can be added. So a, so a 100 proof bourbon means that it's 50% alcohol, 50% uh, water added to it to bring it down to a palatable level. When they're doing samples, professional samples, they bring it down to 30 proof. So that's 15% alcohol. That's basically flavored water. Mm -hmm. um, and all they're going for are the, the, the tasting notes in it. 
everyone has different palates. So the reason people, you know, whether they subconsciously understand it or not, if they're adding rocks, if it's summertime, it's because they want it a little bit cooler and that's understandable, but people will order it on the rocks all the time. What they're really doing is taking their, their favorite whiskey and adding melting water to it uh, to bring it down to a proof point that is comfortable and enjoyable for their palate. Uh, my, my favorite example of that um, is Frank Sinatra. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Sinatra fan. And the more I've read about him, you know, I mean, he, the, the guy just lived in, you know, he, he's considered the preeminent entertainer of the 20th yeah. century. But what an amazing life that he lived and yeah. multifaceted, uh, much more than I think uh, people these days, you know, unless they were really familiar in that era, um, what, he, what he lived through. Um, he always drank Jack Daniels, very, very famous for drinking Jack Daniels. In fact, most people point and say he was the first celebrity, true celebrity endorser of a product, and he was never paid a dime for it. He just, you know, he just professed his love for the product. Really interesting story. This, his birthday was last Monday, so uh, I've been recounting this story quite a bit. Everyone thought of, you know, thinks of Frank Sinatra and thinks of the Rat Pack days and the mm-hmm. Sands Hotel at Vegas and rolling the card out and they were drinking all the time and all that stuff. Everyone thinks that it's just such a heavy drinker. Frank had two specific uh, chapters in his life um, where he was the young crooner, uh, World War One era, you know, the Bobby Sox uh, fans. Uh, and then he hit a point where he had a lull in his career. Um, he got dropped by his, a lot of people don't remember this, but he got dropped by his label down at the dumps. He had some things going on in his personal life that really affected his mindset. Um, at a, at a black tie party, uh, in the early 1940s in New York city, um, Frank is there and he's over in the corner and he is miserable and he's sulking. He's really down to the dumps. Um, Jackie Gleason, the great one. Um, you know, the honeymooners, uh, he was also a band conductor, um, younger folks may remember, remember him as Buford T, uh, justice in the Smokey and the Bandit movies. It's that guy. If you don't know who Jackie Gleason is, uh, very, very famous, uh, and big on the social scene. And he looks over and sees, sees Frank's in the corner and he says, Frank, you gotta get out of here. People can't see you like this. So he takes Frank and they go down the street, not to one of the popular places, but a small pub in New York city called the Harlequin. And he, uh, they go in there and sit out at the bar, and Frank says, I want to get smashed. And Gleason says, I'm up for that. What do you have? What's your favorite? And Frank says, I, I don't know. I've never drank before. And Gleason gives him the famous double take. He says, well, we're going to fix that right now. And he points at the bar. And, of course, New York City bars, I mean, they're going to have one of everything, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's their job. And he points to a, a you know, little uh, – uh, unobtrusive bottle of a little regional southern brand. He said, Jack Daniels, let's stop with that one. Frank got smashed that night. Um, he found that it was a good social lubricant, you know, eased his pain a little bit. Um, Frank did not drink Jack Daniels because it was his favorite whiskey. Jack Daniels was the only whiskey that Frank Sinatra ever drank. And most people, he always put, oh, it's the nectar of the gods. It's the greatest on the planet. It was the only whiskey that he ever drank. And so he learned a specific way of drinking it. He actually considered it very ungentlemanly to be drunk. So after that first night, um, you know, the, the, uh, the longstanding uh, legend of it was Frank Sinatra drank a, a handle, you know, a big 1.75, you know, big half gallon of, uh, of uh, Jack Daniels every single day. And 
his wife, his uh, daughter, Nancy, would say, well, that was that was actually not exactly true. Um, it was more of the whole culture of the act. Dad loved making drinks. He loved the art of creating a drink, right? The, the activity, like a chain smoker. He just, he liked the activity mm-hmm. of making a drink. He remembered everyone's drinks, family and friends. Every, he couldn't remember people's names, but he'd say, Singapore Sling. And they'd say, I can't believe it. Mr. Sinatra remembers my drink. That was his thing. So at the end of a night, um, he would have made, he would, he would make his own drink in an old fashioned glass. The Sinatra way was two fingers of Jack Daniels, three or four ice cubes, a splash of water. So he's sitting there and he'd let it settle what he called settling in. And what was happening was that proof point was coming. Yeah. Jack Daniels out of the bottle is actually not a terribly high proof whiskey, but it's, it's a, it's a, uh, they age it as fast as they can. They age it hot. Um, so to speak. So it can be pretty harsh to some people mm. um, without being on the rocks. Um, I never drank Jack Daniels until I was doing all this narration about Sinatra and I would make it the way that he made it and talk uh, and sip on it. And one day I was like, son of a gun, this is actually really good. I could totally see how he would mm-hmm. walk around drinking this all the time. And he would take a few sips of it. It would get watered down. He'd say, this one's stale. He'd set it down and he'd make another one. So at the end of the day, there would be glasses everywhere where Frank had made a Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water and they never finished it. Do you have a favorite uh, Frank Sinatra book or something that you've read, like a biography or one, one of your favorites? Uh, I, I, I do. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the gentleman's last name. I can even remember his last name. The name of the book is The Way You Wear Your Hat. Um, and it's uh, Frank Sinatra and the Lost Art of Living. Okay, nice. I'll, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. I, I've got it. I'll, I'll send it to you. I've got the book in the other room. I'll, uh, I'll get the gentleman's uh, full uh, name and send it to you. But it's a fascinating book, just about everything that he, you know, dealt with and his successes and things like that, and kind of where it fell, you know, fell into it. But it was funny. The whole Rat Pack scene. You know, all of them would get up there and, and goof around, and even at that point. Uh, Dean Martin, uh, the whole drinking thing, um, it was all an act. And that's what Nancy, and that's what Nancy said as well. She said they were working. That was the act, they, but they were working. They couldn't be sloshy drunk and sing mm-hmm. and perform like that night after night, which is, again, it goes back to, you know, when I'm doing it, I'm not, my, my wife is now satisfied. I'm not going out, hanging out, drinking at bars and restaurants all night long. I'm going there to work. And it's, right. so it, you know, it takes on a different, different uh, prism if you're talking about it from a professional perspective at least for sure well you've you've uh mentioned multiple times that jack daniels is a whiskey and it's a tennessee whiskey and i want to understand what is the difference between a bourbon and a whiskey because there's whiskeys that are made all over the country my understanding is that for it to be a bourbon it has to be made a certain way and is it also true that it has to be made in kentucky to be a a true bourbon is that do i have that wrong kentucky would love for you to believe that it has to be made in kentucky that is actually by the the uh the definition the final definition uh was codified in 1964 by congress um you know scotland has scotch mexico uh, has tequila and their their definition uh, or their their legal definition has been more recent than people would be led to believe anyway um, now you know uh, other countries were trying to make tequila and lay claim to it so mexico basically said in order for it to be called tequila it has to be made here you can call it mezcal which is the larger you know family but you can't call it tequila so uh, bourbon went through the same thing the, the final definition uh, was set in 1964 where they said it has to be made in america it's a unique 
American product. And that came out of the fact that during Prohibition, a few of the big distilling families uh, tried to leave and make it in other places. And then other companies, when bourbon was not being made here, they tried to make bourbon-style whiskey in other parts of the world. And um, it, it's, a, it's a unique combination that makes bourbon uh, American bourbon, you know, really, really good. It's a combination of not just the recipe, but also the weather affects it quite a bit. You know, a specific type of water, low iron water. They refer to it as the, you know, the limestone, you know, Kentucky will say Kentucky limestone water, but it's really low, uh, low iron uh, water uh, that goes into a new charred oak container that we normally think of as a barrel. Mm -hmm. So if uh, in the wine world, right, if you're if it's a 101 class with wine, wine is the broad uh, spectrum. Uh, and then inside, there's different subclassifications of, you know, Cabernets, you've got, you know, Chardonnays that are white wines, you've got Sauvignons, all these different things. Mm. In whiskey, whiskey is the broad category. You have Scotch whiskey made in Scotland. Um, that's Scotch. You've got Japanese whiskey, which is ironically scotch but it's not made in scotland so they can't call it scotch but but the japanese are very very uh, uh fond of the scotch way of single malts making whiskey so japanese whiskey is is extremely similar if not identical to scotland uh to scotch whiskey um you have bourbon uh, bourbon there there are also american whiskeys uh that has to do more with recipe um, you've got weeded bourbons. I mean, there's some subclassifications in there, but bourbon by definition, uh, the original American whiskey is rye whiskey. Um, and it has to do with the grains. All whiskey has to be made from fermented grains. Um, in America, what grew best in the colder Northeast was rye. Um, so rye that was left over at the end of the harvest season would be used um, and turned into whiskey because you could store it. I mean, you know, grain goes old and goes bad. They could ferment it, turn it into whiskey, and now it's tradable. Uh, you know, you can you can barter with that uh, year round, uh, trade it for other things. So rye whiskey was the original American whiskey, and a few of those old brands are still uh, in in production. When we had westward expansion, they found that in the warmer weather, obviously corn grew better. Um, and a lot more left over at the end of harvest season. And that's where bourbon comes in. Bourbon is a minimum 51% corn. Uh, and then there's a secondary grain behind it. Normally, actually, that is rye. So if you're drinking a bourbon and it's very spicy or hot, um, people describe it as hot, that's the rye grain uh, in the bourbon. Corn normally gives you more, you get the sweetness. Um, you know, you will get, you know, people will describe it as sweet and smooth. Um, that's the corn. And the beautiful part about an oak container is that after about, uh, you know, after about, you know, year two, year three, the oak takes over and runs over the corn. So all you're left with is the sweetness of the corn, but it doesn't taste corny. It doesn't mm -hmm. taste like you're, you know, like you're drinking corn uh, because the oak uh, offsets it and takes care of that. I didn't realize it was so nuanced like wine, right? Where, where the, the soil, the water, uh, the weather, had such an impact on the taste, um, you know, of the the finished product. Now, I, I believe if if I'm not mistaken, when we were together in Atlanta, you were sharing some whiskeys that have been made out in Park City. Is it Sky West or there's there's a, 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 a some Western? And how, how does that differ? Like, what, what is the taste profile of something that would be made out west, completely different soil, water, temperate environments to, say, a Jack Daniels or a Kentucky bourbon? How, how would you compare those two? Well, um, 
some of the distilleries are in other parts of the country, uh, but they're, they have the weather that helps uh, make the product well. So you can have, you know, like limestone water. Uh, again, um, the folks in Kentucky, you know, give a, a very, very good convincing story about, you know, the water and how it makes a difference. It does make a difference. But, but like weather patterns, if you imagine the weather person standing up against, you know, a, a large map and waving their hands about weather patterns, you have the same thing uh, when it, when, how it affects, you know, uh, wind and water. So that limestone uh, uh, run actually goes up from, you know, Western Virginia all the way down through Kentucky, uh, all the way down through Tennessee, and even in North Texas. I grew up in Dallas, and you've got black dirt, and, you know, we had no basements there because you, you dig four inches under the dirt, and you hit limestone. So you have very similar water there. There are a number of Texas distilleries that get to take advantage of limestone uh, water. And again, what that really means is that it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, are on the harder side, you don't have the iron. The iron, iron will really mess up um, the fermentation process. It doesn't do well at all. So you've got that. You've also got what you really need uh, on the weather side is you need really, really hot summers that pushes the liquid, you know, as, as the barrels expand in the heat, it pushes the liquid out into the wood. So that's the interaction. You get the wood sugars and the wood tannins, all that good stuff going on. And, and then in the cold winters, they contract back in. So that movement in and out of that charred wood is what gets all the color and all the flavor. That's where in, in whiskey, all that interaction with the wood happens like that. Interestingly, if someone's talking to their their scotch friends and, and someone's, you know, getting a little, you know, uh, they're bragging about it saying, oh, you know, bourbon is so young. You need like a, you know, 50 year old scotch. Well, for scotch, that's true because scotch is typically produced in a uh, in a pre uh, a, a barrel that's been used uh, for bourbon before a used bourbon barrel. Uh, part of the definition of bourbon has to go into a new charred oak container. Scotland or scotch does not have that, so most all of the, the used bourbon barrels go to uh, Scotland and Ireland to make Irish whiskey and Scotch whiskey. Um, they also have anyone that's been there for a golf trip. I mean, it's very, very static weather. So that interaction that, you know, that heat and cold does not happen in Scotland. So the liquid just sits there. It takes longer to have that interaction with the wood. Also makes the whiskey very, very mild, uh, which is what really people really appreciate it. So they're, they're constantly moving those barrels around, but they have to sit there for a lot longer in order to get the proper interaction with the wood to give it the flavor. That's expected. You know, bourbon bourbon doesn't happen that way. You know, Jim Beam um, commercials with Mila Kunis. You know, she brags about it's aged four long years, and people think, well, that's not very long. <laughs> Actually, for some of the American whiskeys, if if it's in a place where there's hot summers, um, four years is plenty. It's ready to go. A standard Jim Beam is aged about four years. If if anyone's had a chance to visit their particular distillery, uh, the campus. Um, some, you know, some of the, the warehouses uh, on some distilleries, you know, they're old uh, brick warehouses. They may be, you know, concrete uh, block warehouses. Some of the oldest ones, you know, were wood and metal clad. The ones at Jim Beam are metal clad. Um, they're black and they have no windows. So they are literally pressure cooking uh, the bourbon to speed up the process and uh, and get it done quicker. So they have some other aged products, but the standard Jim Beam comes out of the chute and it's ready to go and it is very flavorful at you know that, that four to five year mark. Um, but it also means in the middle of summer, the workers can't be up on the top floors of those rick houses after about nine, nine o'clock in the morning, it gets too hot, it's too dangerous to work up there. Um, so it's that, it's that weather 
that weather pattern goes all the way up again there there's uh, you know some very famous uh, uh, whiskey makers bourbon makers uh, in New York uh, state uh, all the way down into Texas there's a couple out on the uh, on the west coast um, sometimes people will have their whiskey uh, distilled uh, produced at another distillery um, doesn't always mean that the big labels make all of their own stuff sometimes they get the, the core product made for them um, and then shipped out to them and they age it in you know in their own distillery so there's a little bit of a nuance there as well not everyone has their own distillery you don't need a 10 million dollar distillery uh, uh, to have your own stuff particularly after we're coming off of decades of people not having it in high demand, someone you know with the age-old distillery is happy to make it for you and put it on a truck and send it to you if you like. And a lot of the big brands have had contract distilling going on where they've not made their own stuff in years. Wow, that's so fascinating. And one of the things that I uh, love to do in the in the summertime with my wife here in East Tennessee is we like to get in the truck and drive up into the mountains and look at some of these old communities, you know, up in the foothills and the Smoky Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains. And, you know, you, you go, uh, you know, through a mountain pass and there'd be this um, higher altitude little meadow and you see these old farms, you know, kind of tucked back in. You can kind of see the stream coming down out of the mountain. And as you stop and you start you know, hearing stories about the the communities, and it's quite a quite a piece from Knoxville or Chattanooga or Nashville. Uh, my wife grew up in West Virginia, and there are all these little communities that are, you know, historic communities tucked back into the mountains. And some of the stories I've heard, and I'm just, I'm curious if this is just folklore or if you have, you know, history behind it. But a, a lot of times, these farmers were self-sufficient. They they had moved, you know, west, and they were building up there in the mountains and very much self-sufficient. But it was very difficult. They they still had economic needs to kind of go into town and purchase, you know, farm implements or, you know, sugar or something, right? And it was difficult for them to take maybe uh, the, the the crops that they were raising out there, up there in those mountains, up in those little pastures and so forth. And they found it a lot easier to make a bourbon or a whiskey and transport that into town and sell it for cash so that they could have sustenance to buy the things that they needed. And therefore, you know, that was kind of part of the economic um, way of life. Um, of course, we've heard the stories of this is kind of how the uh, during prohibition, how the bootleggers got started. And of course, NASCAR got its roots uh, from, you know, that whole episode of people souping up cars and trucks and, you know, be able to outrun the law. But is, is that an accurate statement of kind of the origins of why some of these mountain farmers um, and the, the, some of the famous ones, right, uh, would, would create a whiskey to be able to take it into the into market, into town to be able to sell it? Or is that just folklore? No, it's actually extremely accurate. There was, uh, again, people think of moonshiners from prohibition it being illegal up to that point it was not at all illegal there was also you know as we had westward expansion you know out on the western prairie there were plenty of people with their own stills um, that were making their own whiskey there was a point in the late 1800s where it became a a grave um public concern because uh again going back to some of the you know the the, the metaphorical or what we see in, in movies, old movies and all that. But, you know, the, the proverbial snake oil salesman selling tonic off the back of the wagon. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, that what that is, are, you know, people that are producing some type of, of whiskey or an alcoholic drink 
for use out on, you know, with, with Western expansion, the saloons and all of that, that type of culture. Uh, but there was no quality control whatsoever. And if you saw old, you know, um, you know, magazine cartoons and things where you show the stick figures and, you know, someone laying in a gutter with X's over their eyes, that was actually a real problem in the late 1800s. And we had a, a, a big movement in whiskey uh, with the passage of the bottled end bond act. People ask about when they see a, uh, you know, a whiskey that says bottled in bond, what does that mean? And, and that was actually our first consumer protection act in America. It was passed in, in 1897. Uh, and it basically said uh, in order for it to be a bottled in bond uh, whiskey, it, it had to meet further definitions um, uh, of, of quality control. And it came out of the big distillery saying, look, we've got a, a consumer confidence issue here. You know, we have to make sure that people understand if you buy it from us, that there are measures in place and it's not just someone still, you know, on their farm where they were blending all sorts of, you know, things. Uh, part of part of the, the training that I've gone through through formally to teach others um, in Louisville, you know, multi multi day, uh, you know, training course, uh, uh, executive steward course um, through the State and Thief Society. You actually make a a round of, of whiskey. You go through the process and you put it in the cooker and you, know, you go through the whole process to watch how it develops. And one thing that you learn is, you know, in alcohol. Um, you know, there's a wide range of products that come from the distillation and production of alcohol. You know, there's a very slim area in the middle uh, where it's actually, you know, uh, something that you can imbibe uh, and not kill yourself on either side. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got rubbing alcohol. And if you go much hotter, you've got jet fuel and you've got problems if you ingest it at any of those levels. Um, and so they would take neutral grain spirit. They would have, you know, uh, you know, hot stuff coming off the still. Uh, and then they would blend stuff with it, uh, it, you know, moonshine, white dog, any of the, the nicknames, but but new make whiskey is clear as a bell. Uh, the, the, the most famous non-distilled spirit that people know of is Everclear, and that comes in at the high end. Uh, you know, whiskey cannot be um, uh, distilled. It has to fall in a range below 190 proof, and Everclear is 190 proof. Yeah. So it, you really, no one ever drinks Everclear on its own. You blend it into all sorts of, you know, cocktails and things like that to give it an extra kick. Well, they would take grain-neutral spirits, and they would blend it uh, at the time, um, again, the, the independence to try to, you know, sell them, uh, out, you know, out of the westward expansion, out of the plains at the time, they would mix it with pine tar, they would mix it with turpentine, they would mix it with tobacco juice, they would mix it with tobacco spit from the spittoons and the saloons. Don't worry about it, the alcohol will kill it, all sorts of nastiness in there to give it some color to brown it up so that people would, it would look like what people thought whiskey would look like. So there was a huge quality control problem. The largest distiller said, "We're gonna we're gonna make the government the guarantor of the whiskey." Um, so the the additional rules for bottled and bond is it has to be um, specifically um, uh, four years old or older, or a minimum age quality. So you can say this has sat in the barrel for a while. Um, it has to be made at one distillery. Again, it can be lumber, it can be produce, anything. It's very common for people. Uh, it, uh, wine is this way, you know, not everyone has their own vineyard. They buy excess wines or, or, or grapes from other vineyards, crush them, blend them and make their own product. A lot of famous uh, wineries do that. They don't always have enough on their own uh, grounds to cover the, the need of what they have. So with whiskey, uh, it has to be made at one distillery. 
It has to be stored and aged at that distillery. It has to be bottled at that distillery. So if it's a bottled and bond whiskey from brand X, you can be assured that it was made there, it stayed there, it was bottled there, uh, and it came to the store directly from that distillery. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with people you know, swapping inventory. It still happens all the time. If someone's running low on a particular recipe or they need more rye whiskey with this certain blend that they blend into another product, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But if it's bottled in bond, it's that consumer confidence of it was made by this company, it stayed here, it aged here, it was bottled and came all the way through. So it's still considered a very special designation. A couple of distilleries um, make a a number of bottled and bond whiskeys out of tradition. Wow. Well, I want to hear what happened in the United States for the resurgence. Cause you, you talked about back in the sixties, how the, the younger generation was like, I don't want to do anything that my mom and dad or grandparents did. And James Bond came around. It was at that, that moment, shaken, nut stirred. Right. So the, 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 the clear liquors and the vodkas and so forth. But at some point, something happened where we've got this resurgence and this renaissance of whiskeys in America. I cannot believe how many varieties of whiskeys and the types of whiskey. I mean, it's like every time I turn around, I, I, someone's telling me about, hey, have you tried X, Y, and Z? And this out of New York and it's out of Park City and wherever. And I, I remember one of my favorite ones, re, was, this was actually a couple years ago, but I stumbled across this really small batch of a Kentucky bourbon. You, I'm sure you are familiar with it. It was Elmer T. Lee. And I remember being able to go to a little restaurant here and order an old fashioned or order it on the rocks. And uh, have Elmer T. Lee, and then all of a sudden, it was just like gone. It would became a ghost. I couldn't find it anywhere, and I asked him, what in the world happened to this? And he said, Bob, don't you know? I mean, it was like Men's Journal. It's like they ran an article about it. It was like the best, one of the best bourbons or unheard of bourbons in America. It is literally Casper the Ghost. You can't find it anywhere. So what's going on? What, what, what has happened with this resurgence of bourbons and whiskeys in America? And I'd love to hear if you know anything about Elmer T. Lee. <laughs> Yeah, to, again, too too much. I'll, I'll I'll as much as I can. I'll try to keep these short and not go into an educational session, uh, if if some of them are getting long. But it's just fascinating. It's just fun. The stories are so much fun, and it's so interesting. It's like the most you, you know. The, it's like the best uh, American history class. Your favorite class out of high school. If you had a really good teacher, I'm like you know, I took it every year, but this one year, God, it was just so fun. I made an A in it because it was so interesting and all that. That's what all this is to me. Um, so what, you know, Bob, what is, what is the, uh, you know, if, if money were no object and you had a wish list and you could write down, you know, a name or two of bourbons you've heard about that you can just walk in and get your own bottle of it, what would it be? Well, at the top of the list, it would have to be Pappies, right? I mean, everybody, everybody knows Pappies. That's the, I, I remember coming to a church Christmas party of all things. And a couple of buddies were like, Hey, Bob, come over here. <laughs> And we walked around the corner and he, he broke out the pappies for our small group. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love this party. So the reason I asked that question, it is the queue up question, um, because that is the brand that everyone knows. Everyone in the industry, unless they're just being stubborn and foolish, will acknowledge that the, the beginning of the resurgence, um, again, kind of like the James Bond moment, there were a couple of specific instances. So mm -hmm. imagine for a second, um, uh, that there is all this um, amazing product. In this case, it happens to be bourbon, right? But it could be anything, something that's been underappreciated for a long time. Underappreciated meaning 
uh, think of it like maybe cheap gas. I don't know. Like we, you know, we've 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 all you know we've gotten used to it. And there's a period of the economic. You know, gas is if gas was forty cents a gallon, um, you know, like it like it was you know in the '60s, gas was very very inexpensive. We, what do we have? We had muscle cars. We had big land yacht Cadillacs. Who cared? Fuel was nothing. It cost nothing. Under right, underappreciated. Till the economies change. So in the in the, in the 1980s, you've had distilleries that have closed down, including the old family the distillery of the Van Winkles, uh, the old original distillery where Pappy, the one that Pappy opened that he worked at, was was uh, the Stitzel Weller mm-hmm. Distillery, and that was a merger of the old uh, W. L. Weller Company, where Pappy was a salesman uh, in in uh, uh, the early uh, 1900s. Um, uh, old man Weller passed away. Uh, his sons were involved for a short period of time, but really had no interest. So, so Julian Van Winkle, uh, later, or actually known in early, in early years, I don't know what, where the name came from. Um, but, uh, it was his friends that gave him the nickname Pappy. Um, so Julian Van Winkle said, well, he was, he was one of the big salesmen. He was, you know, back in the horse and buggy days, he was a drummer, uh, is what they called salesmen, or you go out and drum up business. So um, Julian and uh, his other associate, one of the other salespeople, bought the company, the W.L. Weller Company, and Weller never made his own bourbon. Uh, Weller is a very famous brand, obviously. He never made his own bourbon. He was what's called a, a rectifier, where, which is where they would take different stocks, blend them together to come up with a good product, put it in a bottle, and, and, and sell it. Um, just down the street, there was a German immigrant named Alfred Stitzel, um, who had a contract distillery? He made he made uh, you know he would make it for whoever needed it. Um, and Weller had given him a recipe, uh, and Alfred Stitzel made all of it. And um, Alfred Stitzel is also the gentleman who holds the patent for the rick, the the rack inside of a that are all called rick houses because of the ricks. The you know if you've ever seen barrel racks where they kind of go back and forth down the racks, that was all Alfred Stitzel uh, designed that in 1935. Um, Julian Van Winkle, Pappy, uh, moved the entire operation uh, out of town. He had merged the Weller Company and the Stitzel Distillery into the Stitzel Weller Company, and they opened what was then a brand new distillery in uh, on Derby Day, 1935, out in the the outskirts, what were then the outskirts of Louisville. Now it's right in the middle of town. Um, others that are out in the same area just down the street are Brown Foreman. So the old Forrester Distillery is there. The Bernheim Distillery is there. Uh, the early times distillery, they're all up and down the street from each other. But at the time, they were way out in the country. So um, uh, Pappy passed away in the late uh, 1950s. Again, whiskey all during that time period, um, you know, this was all after, you know, post-prohibition, was very, very big. Um, uh, during prohibition, uh, the Stitzel distillery was one of only six that were granted licenses uh, for medicinal purposes. So the Stitzel distillery was still making whiskey through uh, prohibition that doctors could prescribe in, in little, you know, little, uh, little pint bottles. Um, so that's what, what kept them going. So um, Julian or Pappy passed away uh, in the late 1950s. His son was a, was a World War II tank commander, very, very popular guy, very gregarious. He took over the business um, during the decline in in the early 70s, um, it was all family and friends money behind the distillery. The distillery was not losing money. It just wasn't making a lot of money. Um, 
uh, it was doing very well, had lots of business. It just was not turning a, a massive profit. And they were always, you know, reinvesting into the distillery to keep things up and running. And they just said, look, we just want to move our money. And we want to entertain offers to sell the distillery. The immediate Van Winkle family. Now, some of this has been recounted in 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 some uh, variations of the stories, like you know they they that they were all for it and all that. It just made economic sense, and they had to do it. The the the, the direct Van Winkle family never wanted to sell the distillery. Um, they did everything they could to to keep that from happening, and they just couldn't. It was tearing the family apart. So Julian Jr reluctantly agreed in the early 70s to sell out to you know one of the conglomerates that were you know big corporate conglomerates at the time in all different types of business one of them was norton simon i think simon properties is still in making shopping malls these days yeah. but norton simon bought the distillery and owned it for a short period of time um the ownership changed but nothing else really changed um he still had an office there they were still making the same great uh, bourbon recipe uh, that people wanted the big brand that they made actually was old fitzgerald Okay. Um, they still made they made Weller there as well, but Old Fitzgerald was Pappy's brand. That was the famous one that he made that everyone thought was so great. Um, uh, but nothing really changed. Um, at that point, when they sold the distillery, uh, the brands started leaving. The, the brand started going up for sale uh, over time. Um, Weller uh, was sold to what was then the Ancient Age Distillery, which got, has gone through a number of historic names. That's a whole. We could spend another hour over there, but that's what's now known as Buffalo Trace, the Buffalo Trace distillery. Okay. That's how Weller moved over there. The old Fitzgerald brand was sold to, uh, subsequently sold to Heaven Hill. So Heaven Hill, which makes Elijah Craig and Evan Williams, also makes old Fitzgerald. So they have the recipe, the same recipe over there. Um, the recipes and the flavors, what, what makes it interesting as well with bourbon is you can have, it's like grandma's apple pie recipe. You can have it on the laminated index card. Grandma can pass away. It can go to your mom. It can go to your aunt and your cousin. They all end up making the exact same recipe. And if you all bring them for Thanksgiving, they're all delicious, but they all taste just a little bit different. Well, the crust is flakier, the apples, all that. Because as everyone knows, everything that goes into it, even the style of oven, the size of the pan, the, the brand of the flour and the sugar, everything has an effect on the, on the product. Mm. So these days you can taste old current old day uh, or current day old Fitzgerald, current day Weller, um, Maker's Mark. Um, uh, Pappy gave the recipe uh, to Bill Samuels when they were starting up the new family distillery that became Maker's Mark. They're all the exact same recipe or very, very close. Wow. They all taste uh, unique and different. Lots of stock uh, of bourbon sitting around in the 70s and 80s that nobody wanted to the point that people were selling these stocks um, and, and putting them into other whiskey products um, in, under other names that weren't even bourbon anymore, blending them into blended whiskeys because they had just had an overflow of all of this aged stock. The old timers in the business would tell you that the, that the sweet spot for bourbon was between six and eight years. Anything after eight years made them extremely nervous because Bourbon that sits in the barrel too long, that goes through the normal hot summers and cold winters, it gets what, what they call over-oaked. And once the oak characteristics take over, you can never bring it back. You can never rescue it. So what people love about scotch is it's being you know so mild on the flavor and the palate. With bourbon, especially if you're aging it hot and then cold, it can get over-oaked, and it doesn't take as long as most people think. And once it's oaked, it's ruined. It's just, once it's so heavy, it's just like biting into a tree. So you want to get up close to that area uh, of flavor profile 
but you don't want to dive into it. So there was all of these stocks of 10-year, 12-year, 15-year bourbon everywhere. Everyone had it. No one was buying it. It was cheap and it was plentiful. Um, much like chefs, French chefs use sherry wine to cook, um, some of the American chefs started using bourbon uh, in cooking. And a couple of vocal chefs uh, were using bourbon to much acclaim. Uh, one of them uh, was Anthony Bourdain. And, you know, Anthony uh, Bourdain had a very um, unique um, uh, personality. It can be a bit caustic at times. And so he would be going through his cooking, you know, cooking episodes. And he'd glance at the camera and say, by the way, if you're not drinking this, you're blithering idiot. Mm-hmm. And he said that about Happy Van Winkle. Happy Van Winkle, the bottle, came about by the grandson who was just trying to hang on to the family legacy um, he was not at the old family distillery anymore. That that whole relationship had ended. He was buying barrels back from the old family distillery at the time um, and taking them across the state to a small ramshackle, broken down distillery very close to, to uh, Wild Turkey down in a creek hollow. Uh, in fact, they, the, the, the stills did not work. They were only using it for bottling. But if they would have a lot of rain and a bad flood, they would walk in in the morning and there would be bottles of bourbon floating around in the creek water inside of the bottling facility. That's that's current Julian Van Winkle, the the, the owner of the Van Winkle brand, Old Grip Van Winkle uh, distillery brand. Um, it, and that was in the 90s. Uh, and, and so, again, what did it were if, if I had a crystal ball or a, uh, you know, magic DeLorean where I could go back in time? If I could drive back through during my healthcare days, in the same areas, the same period, if I could just pull off the road and meet a middle-aged, uh, you know, Julian Van Winkle, who's got uh, a bushel of little kids, and he's just trying to keep food on the table, and if you rolled up on him and said, I want to buy an entire barrel of bourbon from you, I love your stuff, he would be shocked. And he, his first question would be, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who, needs a whole barrel, who needs a whole barrel of bourbon? He's got bottles f- floating in the stream out back. Yeah, there, there were, there were, and there were, you know, some of the longstanding relationships are people that were buying bourbon. They were buying bourbon and uh, uh, exporting them. Uh, again, the Japanese market, the Asian market, is really what saved bourbon at the time, including for the Van Winkles. So they were bottling very fine, just amazing bourbon, and putting their label on it. When they sold the other, when the family sold the labels, uh, again, going off track. Old Fitzgerald got uh, sold. Weller got sold. The only label that they held on to um, was one that they never used before. They just kept it because it was neat and it was a family name, and that's Old Rip Van Winkle. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of his aunts was nicknamed Rip, so they had the brand that they had never used before. And um, his his dad and and current uh, Julian III started using Old Rip Van Winkle uh, for their brand of whiskey, and they would buy bottles back from the old distillery, so it was the same good old stuff. They'd put it in their newer, you know, their updated labels and sell it, and those are some of the most coveted, most collectible bottles out there uh, because you could walk into stores in Kentucky and buy it, and no one thought anything of it. It wasn't special at all, and then, and then for years sitting, you could find old dusty bottles of Van Winkle uh, sitting around, uh, you know, sitting around the stores that that no one looked at. Um, at the beginning of this craze that took off, uh, it would not be uncommon to walk into a store in any major city where they distributed, and you could find a bottle that had been sitting there for well over a year, two years. It just didn't move at all. The, the Pappy label 
was what Julian started using to honor his grandfather, Pappy Van Winkle. Anything that was 15 years and older, he started putting his face on it. But that actually is, is uh, you know, is something that, that only came about in the late 90s. Before then, it was all, you know, mostly handwritten labels. and mm-hmm. You know, again, these old vintage bottles that people, you know, spend thousands of dollars for now. But, but the, uh, uh, the Pappy Van Winkle label, um, one of their salesmen in the late 90s, um, submitted a bottle of it to the Beverage Testing Institute up in Chicago. And it's, you know, again, for people that are in the know on wine and food and all of that, you know, that's one of the, the good housekeeping seal of approval type houses where they basically evaluate everything and give, um, you know, scores and recommendations. The Beverage Testing Institute gave Pappy Van Winkle 20 year or a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle 20 year, a score of 99. And that was the highest score or any alcoholic beverage um, uh, that had ever been submitted. And that's what really kicked it off. So we do have Happy Van Winkle bourbon to thank for the Renaissance. And, and all of the distilleries will acknowledge it. That's what created the spark uh, and the interest was Happy Van Winkle. And the people started spreading out, buying the special editions of other distilleries and realizing, my gosh, there is so much great whiskey out there that's just been sitting around for decades. So then everything, again, if I could just go back, gosh, just take me back 10 years, you mm-hmm. know, prior to all this starting off. I mean, the, the things that you could own that you could be, you, you could be retired now with the stock that was just sitting in every liquor store right now. Um, everything takes off. Well, you can't just spin around and wave a wand and create 15 or 20 year old product of anything just because people start buying it again. So we went from this tremendous glut to people starting to acquire it. They keep making it, but they can't make it fast enough. And then when it really took off over the last, I would say the, you know, the last five years is when, when things have just completely gone crazy. Um, now they can't make it fast enough. Um, ironically, during COVID, the, the, if there was a blessing in there at all, it gave downtime to the distillery. Some of the distilleries have literally doubled production and opened up second campuses in an effort to keep up with demand. They can't, they can't cover the demand in America much less expand in some of the other markets that are screaming for bourbon now. So now, you know, anything that has any real age on it or is well known, um, you can't find in the stores. Uh, they're highly collectible. Um, there's auction sites all over the place. And some of these bottles go for just crazy money, just crazy money. Wow. When I was in the military and traveling through uh, the Far East, uh, I was shocked at the the culture and the fascination with American whiskeys, especially uh, Jack Daniels, right? Which was just it, and like, to be able to give a gift, to bring a gift of Jack Daniels or an American whiskey, you know, to a friend that was, you know, at Yokota Air Base outside Tokyo or, you know, Kadena or, you know, some of the places that I went, it was like, wow, this is really awesome. You know, w- w- why? I mean, I remember seeing the movie, uh, Bill Murray's, uh, one of his famous movies, I think it's lost in translation. It was him going over there as an American kind of advertising, you know, the Suntory, you know, whiskey brand, you know, what was it with the, the, the fascination of, uh, the, the, the Asian, the Asian culture in the far East with American whiskeys. And they've got, as you mentioned a little bit earlier in here, they've got their own, you know, very robust whiskey production. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't, um, Oh, there's been some huge investments. Uh, oh, Maker's Mark. What's it make? Maker's Mark bought by a, a Japanese firm. So w- what's going on there? We, we literally have the Japanese to thank for um, 
keeping bourbon specifically a viable subclassification in whiskey. If not for the Asian market, bourbon would have been left for dead. It would be, it would be a, you know, it would be a small section of, you know, a particular type of whiskey that if you were going into a liquor store and you weren't buying wine or you weren't buying other types of liqueurs that you may look over, but the, the, the number, the, the, you know, you would not have an aisle of bourbons if it were not for the Asian market during the downturn. They, they, you know, they had obviously latched on to scotch for a long, long time. Um, they, they make their own whiskey, Suntory, you know, Japanese whiskey, which is very much in the, the scotch tradition, single malt uh, whiskeys. Um, when bourbon was low, notwithstanding any, you know, Asian uh, business travelers that were coming over here and trying it, liking it and carrying some back, when bourbon was low here, they obviously have much more of a voracious, historically a voracious appetite for alcohol. That that is much that is a huge part of their culture, and they are extremely strong imbibers um, in 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 the tradition uh, of of all types of all types of whiskeys. Uh, they were buying it uh, and exporting it back to the Asian market. And when there was no market here, and someone across the world says, "Hey, we want to buy it." The distillers are gonna are gonna sell it. So a lot of it was going to the Asian market in the late '60s, well into the '70s and '80s. It was the only place that where where they were selling a whole lot of, you know, American whiskey uh, bourbon. Um, some of the famous brands in bourbon now are some of the you know the craft brands, some of the collectible bottles and all that started from people buying in bulk bourbon from the big distillers who had plenty of it, uh, and they would buy it, repackage it, put it in their own labels. And then sell it uh, overseas. Um, so a lot of the, the um, you know what are now, again some of the unique brands and labels that people collect started off as Japanese exports. If you really really want to find some fantastic bourbon, uh, go visit Japan and go into some of their you know their little bourbon bars, and they have just rows and rows and rows of collectible bourbons. Uh, they're not going to be terribly inexpensive. Um, but at least you can find them there. Things that you can't possibly find here uh, anymore. So there were um, there were investments. Um, uh, current owner of Four Roses uh, uh, Distillery is actually Kirin Brewing out of Japan, and then the one that you mentioned, uh, Centauri, bought Jim Beam. Uh, Jim Beam is currently uh, the largest bourbon uh, manufacturer in the world, so it's now Beam Centauri. And then Beam Centauri bought Maker's Mark uh, a short time ago. Wild Turkey is owned by Campari, um, uh, and then Pernod Ricard, uh, they had a purchase as well. Um, the uh, the remnants of Seagram that became through Guinness and then became Diageo, so there's some foreign investment there, but but uh, most of our big houses now are owned by outside conglomerates, international conglomerates, and there's a lot of um, a good economies of scale of that too. Again, bourbon barrels go to either Scotland uh, which some of these big conglomerates own, you know, uh, brands of scotch as well, or they go south to Mexico uh, for tequila. So uh, Buffalo Trace specifically, Buffalo Trace is owned by Sazerac. Now that is an American company based in in, uh, in New Orleans. Sazerac um, has a very unique program that if you uh, are, are selected a club or, or an organization, if you select a barrel of bourbon when it's done, Traditionally, if you are buying an entire barrel's worth of bourbon, which is, you know, on average around 200 bottles of bourbon, they'll give you the barrel um, uh, that, that it, that it uh, aged in. Oh, wow. But they'll also say, look, if you want, if you don't have any use for the barrel or if you want to continue this fun journey, we're going to send this barrel down to Mexico 
uh, and make tequila in it. And then when it's done, you can buy the barrel of tequila. Uh, and then after that, uh, if you want to parlay that, we'll send it down to the Caribbean and we'll put rum in it and we'll age it, you know, we'll age a, a popular brand of rum that's in our portfolio. And at the end, you end up with a barrel that looks like the old, you know, traveler stamp suitcases that's got passport, I mean, everything all over it, signatures all over it from having carried bourbon and then your tequila and then your rum. And you can buy all those products through the same company. And I've, I've known a couple of parties that have done that, and it's pretty interesting. Well, I want, I want to make sure that our listeners have an opportunity to go out and visit your website, follow you on Instagram. Uh, we've already mentioned both of those locations, Bourbon Whisperer and bourbonwhisper.com and then on Instagram bourbon whisper one word uh you've got you're out of uh Atlanta Georgia uh you do all sorts of uh events and I want you to be able to uh, share with us what are the ways in which people can engage with you but before you do before we end on that note uh, when I was down there you had shared a story when I was down in Atlanta for this party you had shared in a story with a number of the guests about how you had specifically handpicked uh, some bourbon and uh, bottled it yourself on, with your label, and uh, it had gone through some taste testing. And you had, you've just spoken about how prolific the Rip Van Winkle brand is, the Pappy's label, and that your bourbon that you had uh, chosen and uh, had bought, was bottled actually won a taste test against Pappy's. So tell us real quickly a little bit about that, and then I want to uh, finish with uh, folks being able to figure out how they can engage with you, follow you, use you for their charity events or business and corporate events. This has been so fascinating. I can't thank you so much for uh, your time. But I, I appreciate that. Um, the um, the barrel in question um, uh, again, it comes out of the, the the craft side of you know people buying barrels from other people and trying some unique fun things. There's actually a distillery here in uh, in North Atlanta, uh, in the Northern Atlanta area, Legends Distillery uh, here out of Cumming. They were actually here for a year and a half before I knew that they were here. But they are a an NDP, a non-distiller producer, like a lot of other um, uh, distilleries, uh, where actually there's not a, a still there. They contract with people who are experts at making different types of whiskeys. And they they had uh, they offered me a bottle of their standard uh, product, which I thought was, was very, very good. They put it through a, a patented process that kind of levels the bourbon out for the short version of it, knocks down some of the harshness on the front end, and really makes it uh, nice. And they called me one day and said, we are, we are looking at releasing a weeded bourbon that we were speaking earlier about you know uh, a recipe so you've got corn on the front end of any of any bourbon uh, and then typically the secondary grain is rye that creates that spice that really flavorful hot that a lot of people like in bourbon um, uh, W.L. Weller and some other gentlemen um, had had determined long ago that you could actually sub out uh, soft winter wheat for the rye and you could create a very smooth elegant bourbon so weeded bourbons, uh, bourbons with wheat as the secondary grain, a number of famous ones. Again, the Van Winkles are weeded bourbons. Weller is weeded bourbon. Old Fitzgerald is weeded bourbon. Maker's Mark. Uh, those are all weeded bourbons that people tend to come away saying it's a very elegant, smooth, uh, you know, uh, nice uh, bourbon. Um, they were going, they said, we want to, we're going to buy some, we've bought some experimental barrels. 
uh, of, of uh, weeded bourbon and we're going to release it. We want to know what you think. And my first response was, I think you shouldn't do it. Um, I'm a huge fan of weeded bourbon. And if you don't do it right, it has, um, it has really horrific results. It takes some nuance to age weeded bourbon correctly. Um, if it's if it's released at the wrong time, it tastes like, in, in, in my words, uh, you know, wet cardboard and peanuts. It tastes awful if you don't do it right. Um, and they said, well, we're going to do it and we want your input. Um, and I said, well, if I don't like it, I'm going to tell you. And they said, that's exactly what, what we want to hear. I put together a test kit, a sample kit of all of the heavy hitters that I'd mentioned and um, went over to their distillery and I picked their sample blind out of a blind taste test i picked their sample out of all of them wow. and i said well you got my attention um you know how many barrels and they said there's only 20 barrels and i said have you done any single barrel uh picks which is where basically someone comes in and you take samples and you basically say we're going to take this one and you you are buying 200 bottles of bourbon uh to do that whatever was in the barrel you're buying the contents of it and uh i said i want to be your first customer and of course the owner was there and he said we would love to sell a a barrel of bourbon that we have not even released yet. That's really good for cash flow. That would be wonderful. So we sampled from all the barrels that day uh, and chose what what we felt was the best single barrel out of all of them. And there were a number of really great samples, and and I purchased it. Now that's just one guy's opinion. Okay, that's just you know I was buying it and uh, you know to use for all of my tastings and samples as something unique and new and all that. Um, four weeks later, that sample much. Again, like the you know years and years ago, where the where the Van Winkle was sent up, this one was sent up to my good friend um, Fred Minnick, who is the preeminent bourbon author uh, uh, right now and, and critic. Uh, if you walk into a liquor store and there's little numbers under the bourbons, you know scores. For years and years, he was the one that was doing those scores for a couple of the major magazines. Um, it was sent up to him, and he has a blue ribbon panel uh, of experts, and they do what are called the Ascot Awards. Um, every year. And um, he did the same thing. He chose it blind um, out of, and they had samples from everything. They spent, they spent a number of, of, of weeks over a couple of months narrowing down all these samples to come up with the best bourbons in America. And he chose it as the best, his panel, he and his panel chose it as the best weeded bourbon in America for 2021. And, and it, funny enough, I was watching online like this when he, uh, when he announced it, and he pulled up the bottle of Legends Weeded Bourbon and he stared at it. He said, looked around and said, what is this stuff? I don't even know what this is because it was only released here in Georgia, which specifically meant for the most part Atlanta. And they chose it. So the next morning it all sold out, uh, the, 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 the number of bottles that were limited sitting out of the stores. The distributor called the distillery saying, we want to take all the rest of it off your hands. The distillery said, we're going to hold on to what we have and sell it here at the distillery. That all vanished within you know, a, a, a number of, a short number of weeks in what remained were only the cases from my single barrel that were hiding in one store uh, and in, in my, you know, in my stocks and then what was left in the store, they wanted some to sell. And that's all that was left of it. So the distillery said, we're going to try to re-release this later when we can get some more aged product. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we agreed that that award-winning batch should be relabeled so they relabeled it with my name on it and the stories on the back of the bottle and it's it's just it's it's really dumb luck uh, to some extent i'll admit that readily um, but it's it's part and parcel of the story of bourbon of finding these unique barrels with specific characteristics you know the the, the mystical uh, elements of a single barrel and running across one that you really really love that that is special so now i take bottles of that 
when I travel in Kentucky and I swap them. I trade them for what we would consider crazy stuff, um, but they've heard of it and have never had it. So it's fun to share and, and compare products in that regard. Well, you were certainly sharing it at the party and you had the best of the best. You had this setup. It was amazing. And uh, you were giving the full taste test to everybody that was there. And hands down, I was like, oh, my gosh, this thing is amazing. And so you say it's dumb luck. I don't think it's dumb luck. Anybody who has studied and become a connoisseur and a true student, this is an art and a science. And you have dialed it in on both respects. Um, I think it was uh, years of uh, hard work and patience and perseverance and uh, all of that rolled into one. You, you knew exactly what you were looking for, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to get that and uh, get that bottle. And now you're trading it for some good stuff as well. So, man, it's, what a fantastic uh, story and journey, Rod. I'm uh, so happy to have been able to spend some time with you this morning. Now, you're involved in so many different things down there in Atlanta. For people who would want to engage, it sounds like you do some educational programs up in Louisville. Uh, people can also engage with you. I've, I've been out on your website. They can engage and have you uh, come in and give private taste testings and uh, share with us briefly the ways in which people can connect with you and some of the things that you're doing and how they can learn more about this fascinating art and science of the American whiskey and bourbon. I, I will give I will give quick credit to my uh, former next door neighbor who came up with the moniker. I was trying to think of something kind of catchy. Um, I am I am blessed and cursed with the with the name Rod Arnold, which is a very nice name and one of the most forgettable names that you'll ever come across. So I'm not offended a bit if no one, if people, I get Ron, I get Rob, I get, Hey, you doesn't offend me a bit. Um, and I wanted something that was more brand oriented, just, you know, being my own business owner in, in other venues, I knew the importance of the marketing brand. Um, and he said, well, it's gotta be like, you know, something where, you know, knowledgeable, but not arrogant, like bourbon guru is just stupid. I mean, who's going to want to call that snotty guy and bourbon's not that way. And he came up with, he was thinking of the horse whisperer, which is someone, who you would go to if you had serious questions and you genuinely wanted some, you know, some gentle help. And um, so he came up with the moniker Bourbon Whisperer. So if you're looking me up, you always have to add that extra ER to the end. It's not whisper, it's whisperer. It's someone who purportedly speaks to bourbon and knows stuff. And so I'll admit to a little bit of that. Um, Instagram, Bourbon Whisperer, all one word, uh, is, is a very good way to kind of get a feel of uh, the bourbon community and what I'm, you know, what I'm all about. There's some educational stuff on there. There's a lot of, did you know, um, um, uh, that's on there. Uh, it's the history stuff that I, that I really get into. And then the website is bourbonwhisperer.com and that'll give a full layout and you can contact me through there. You Instagram, you can contact me through there. I get, I get, uh, you know, texts and messages all day long and it's everything from, Hey, we have an event idea. Uh, can you be involved? Hey, I want to come to one of the classes and, you know, get a, get a little pin that says, Hey, I drink bourbon and no stuff. And, and they start on their way, the educational stuff. I do all of the classes, uh, for, uh, you know, for the state and thief society here in Atlanta. Um, so those are a lot of fun as well. Um, you know, private parties, et cetera. I also get texts where someone is in a liquor store and they'll say, Hey Rod, you know, I met you at so-and-so party. I'm looking at these two bottles, which one, you know, which one should I go left or right? And, and I'm okay with that too. It's all, it's all a matter of fun. I would end on the note of what we talked about earlier. Um, the, the key word to me is enthusiasm. It really doesn't matter what you do, right? You got to be happy with what you do. You got to have enthusiasm. And if, and if you don't have that, there's no sin in being in a, in a hardworking job and, and supporting a family or supporting others. Um, but if you don't have enthusiasm, you know, do yourself a favor and take a moment and look around. 
and take some time to yourself and take care of yourself and look and see what is it you can do that brings enthusiasm because when you have enthusiasm that's what benefits others the most because you're 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 enthusiastic about what you're doing it's going to make you more interested in what you're doing which will make you more knowledgeable about what you're doing people will want to talk to you wow there's no better way to end this podcast than on that incredible note right there so rod thank you so much for your time we're going to make sure that all of your uh, notes are uh, in the show notes so people can uh, go out there and connect with you and boy, how enjoyable was this? You're a man that is obviously enthusiastic, and you've gotten me even more enthusiastic about uh, the art and science of American bourbons and whiskeys. And I look forward to being one of those guys that takes one of your classes. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I've got uh, uh, three or four books, and I'll just give them. I'll, I'll just send you the, the uh, names of people that are interested in different facets of bourbon. Uh, great little library to start off on. And again, they're all they're all enjoyable to read on the different subjects of work. Fantastic. I'll make sure to have those in the show notes. You have a wonderful day, sir. Thank you, Bob. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Rod Arnold, for taking the time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That is always appreciated. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We will be back next week with more. 